This is The Bittersweet Life. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. I'm Katie Sewell. I've been in the radio business for nearly 20 years, mostly working for public radio in the United States. In 2013, I quit my stable job and I moved to Rome for just a year. That's where this podcast begins. And if you're new, don't be afraid to start at the beginning. I'd hate for you to miss out on the adventure. That adventure might inspire you to do something crazy, like quit your stable job and move to Rome for just one year. And my co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer and author of Midnight in the Piazza. And she's also an expat who moved to Rome over a decade ago with the determination to stay whatever it took. She's also my childhood friend. I met her on the school bus in the sixth grade. I hope you like the show, and if you do, tell a friend and take the time to write us a review. And if you've listened to the show for years, consider a donation. Your financial support is huge to us. In fact, I can't think of a donation to anywhere that would be more appreciated than what it will be to us. We'll send you a handwritten thank you note. And in addition to helping us pay hosting fees and other bills, your support will help us grow the show, which is absolutely the key to this program continuing in the years to come. So if you love it, if we make your life a little better, please pay whatever you can to support the art that you enjoy. Visit thebittersweetlife.net on your desktop and click the donate button. Or tweet us at bittersweetpod and we'll send you a link. Thank you so much. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Tiffany Parks in 2019, still (laughs) sick, still under the weather. I don't know what's wrong with me. (laughs) (laughs) My immune system is on, um, it's on strike. Yes. Clearly. Yes. It's like, no, we like your voice sounding like this. We're going to leave it as it is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's it's somehow my body wants me to have this, you know, radio career. So I need to have a sexier voice. Uh, anyway, so in the wake of our 2018 resolution show from last week, I, of course, continue to contemplate whether or not my resolutions are cop-outs or not. <laughs> but I also hate making grandiose resolutions, as you know. But I did think that when I was thinking about what I was hoping for the year of 2019, I was hoping that if I find myself in a rut, which I often do if I'm just... I guess social media is often a rut for a lot of people or if I find myself always walking down the same street and turning the same corners and feeling like everything's kind of dull, that I was going to try to figure out how to get out of that rut. That that would be like an ongoing notice the ruts and get out of them. And I don't know about you, but one of the ways that I always do that when I'm feeling depressed in my house, and I don't know if we've talked about this or not, but often what I'll advice I'll give myself and my friends if I'm feeling depressed and in a rut is to go outside and see what the birds are doing. Have I ever told you that? No, but that's one of my pieces of advice. I don't think you have, but it's very you. Yes, it's very me. So because when you go outside and you see what the birds are doing, or I guess you could see what the squirrels are doing or whatever, the ants, whatever (laughs) creature you discover when you go outside, 
it's just a way of smacking you out of that rut and realizing there's a whole lot of other creatures going about doing some other things out here and your rut is your own and you can get outside and hey it's a much bigger world than i'm allowing myself to see right now uh, do you have anything like that when you're feeling kind of stuck in a place something that you do to try to break yourself out of it well i can't think of anything that's a rule of mine that i go to thing that i always do but I will share with you a little quote that I just sort of popped into my head while you were talking, and I just looked it up. So you're more of a nature person, and although I am a nature person too, I'm not, especially like the creatures of the world, I generally will go to art for those kinds of things. And so it made me think of this quote by Goethe, which I actually posted on our uh, social media several months ago, but it just popped into my head. So this is Goethe, and he says, a man should hear a little music read a little poetry, and see a fine picture every day of his life in order that worldly cares may not obliterate the sense of the beautiful which God has implanted in the human soul. Oh, wow, I love that. That's really beautiful. Yeah, and you know, once upon a time when I was feeling ambitious, I was like, hmm, maybe I should try to do that. See, like look at a picture every day. I mean, not necessarily live because it's not possible to go to a, a museum every single day, but you know, look something up on the computer, listen to a piece of music, read a piece of poetry every day. Of course, you know, it's kind of a tall order to do every day, but it's something that you could do on those days when, like you said, you're feeling like you need to recenter. Yeah, I love that. That's a really, really great point. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to write that down and I'm going to stick it to my computer. <laughs> uh, so the other thing, when I was thinking about all this, I kept thinking about Amy Herman, who was a guest that we had ages ago. Not even ages ago. That makes it sound like we've been around since the dawn of time. But, you know, back in the 100s of our episodes, Amy appeared and she had written a book called Visual Intelligence that was urging people to use the close observation of fine art to learn how to be more aware of their actual surroundings. Ever since I talked to her and ever since we had her on this show, I've found more than almost any other guest we've ever had. She's really altered the, the way I engage with the world and how I am out and about on the planet. Wow. I know. I, she just really, I really do feel like she changed what I noticed as I was walking around. And since her TED Talk also just surpassed 500,000 views. So I thought in the hope that we might start out this year by being more observant and alive in our actual world rather than our virtual world and to get us out of our ruts or at least me into the notion of staying out of the rut as much as possible in 2019, I thought we might listen back to that interview that for whatever reason, I have never been able to forget. Okay, let's do it. This is Amy Herman teaching us how to be more visually intelligent. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. Can I start out with one of the first things you say in the book, which is that our very lives sometimes can depend on someone's good observation skills or our own. Can you explain why? Sure. We put our lives in other people's hands every day. I think that comment came up in the context of my going on a police ride along when I was in law school and I was watching police officers and they were in action. All my other friends had gone on the ride along, they had coffee and donuts with the cops and they went back to school. But that didn't happen on my ride along. We got a call, it was a domestic violence call and I watched them in action. And I thought, my safety is in their hands right now. How did I end up here? And I realized in so many ways, every day, we are dependent on other people's observation and perception skills, not only 
for our own personal safety and our own situational awareness, but also how we see the world writ large. We're in other people's hands all the time, and we really need to be confident about their observation skills as well as our own. Can you give an example of why somebody else is walking down the street near me, why their observations might matter to me? Well, part of the, it's not that I have a pet peeve with digital technology, but we all see distracted walkers. And there are people that are on their phones and they're texting. And if I, if I stop watching them, they're going to hit me or people that are texting in the car. We are so distracted. I'll give you another example that I mentioned in the book. I was on the Metro in Washington, DC, and I was standing on the platform and I noticed an emotionally disturbed person and he had a sharp object with him and he was sort of jabbing himself and talking to himself. And when the train pulled in, I moved to the other end of the platform because I didn't want to get into a car with this man. And I saw no fewer than a dozen people get into the subway car with him and I thought, Are you not aware of the world around you? Do you want to be in a subway car with this? The man was evidently emotionally disturbed and he was carrying a sharp object. And so we need to be situationally aware. And I see evidence. I see it lacking conspicuous absence of situational awareness on a daily basis. One of the things I thought was so interesting that you said was that we see with our brains and rarely our eyes. Why would that be something that's important to know? Well, one of the things, uh, my publisher was very intent on my laying a scientific foundation in this book. And I said, well, the problem with that is I'm not a scientist and I can't pretend to be one. So what I did in lieu of doing scientific research, I went and I spoke to neurobiologists and neuroscientists hoping to get a layman's foundation for the book. And the biggest takeaway that I had was when we're kids, we learn about the eye, the parts of the eye and how we process images. And we learn about the retina in the back of our eye that inverts the images. And my biggest takeaway from talking to these neuroscientists is that the retina is actually brain tissue and not eye tissue. So that in the process of seeing, and I put that in quotes, our brain is already processing the images and subjecting it to our associations and our experience and our education. So when we see with our eyes, we're already seeing with our brains. Right, because we might be inferring a lot of things into a situation just based on our upbringing, our traumatic experiences that we've had, anything like that, right? Absolutely. And also, uh, I hope I make the point throughout the book that no two people see anything the same way. And an example that came up the other day, I raised my son in New York City, and so we're bombarded with visual information every day, and I try to teach him to remove his filters and you know really take in all the information. And again, I thought an emotionally disturbed person was coming towards us, and I said to my son, let's cross the street. And he said, why? I said, look at the guy coming towards us. And he was wildly gesticulating and yelling, and my son said, mom, he's on a Bluetooth. <laughs> which I failed to see completely, but because my son is a digital native, he saw it right away. <laughs> it's such, that's another thing. We're always walking down the street talking to ourselves now, right? <laughs> so we can train our brains, though, to see more. That's sort of the point of your book, right? Yes. yes. I do believe that we can train our brains to see more and that one never masters observation or good perception skills. It's work in progress because we are, we're subjected to tunnel vision every day, figuratively we're going from point A to point B and I want people to step out of that routine of going from point A to point B and taking in a broader view of their world because there's so much that we're missing not just the nuances and details of our daily lives but big things are happening I think we owe it to ourselves to expose ourselves to all that information right and it's not just trauma though we'll no. talk about trauma <laughs> but it is also just the beauty of the world or what 
what the creatures are doing or whatever it is, right? Absolutely. One of the photographs that I use, it's not in the book because I discovered it after the manuscript went in, is a photograph by Steve McCurry, and he traveled around India in the 80s and took these incredible photographs. And one of them is of two men on a steam train, and they worked on the steam train, and they took the same steam train every day, and they're looking down, and they're looking at the train, and the train is passing the Taj Mahal, and they're not even looking at it because... They're so used to what they do every day. Who needs to see the Taj Mahal again? But figuratively, I use that as a good analogy that sometimes we just let the big picture go by. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Well, I was an expat in Rome, as everyone listening knows. One of Tiffany's friends, my co-host, used to say that if you ever get to a point where you walk past the Pantheon and you don't look up, it's time to move. It's time to move. I agree with that completely. Yeah. That's Yes, it's same same idea as the Taj Mahal. So let's talk about art. Anybody who's observant of the Bittersweet Life's website knows that every picture that we use is a Caravaggio painting. They deduce that from time to time. And you use Caravaggio and Michelangelo and uh, all these names I couldn't possibly name to, to get people to be more observational. How did you decide to use art to do that? Well, I had studied art undergraduate, and I had my own aha moment when it came to studying art history. In 1986, I was in a 20th century art class, and my professor put up two paintings by Mark Rothko side by side, and they literally took my breath away. I thought, oh my God, somebody painted those. And that power of the art stayed with me, and then I went to law school, and I sort of pined for all the time I used to spend in museums and studying art, and I became a lawyer, and it just stayed with me in the back of my mind thinking there has to be a way to get back to using art in a practical way. And it was when I finally left the private practice of law, I became a museum educator. And there I was uh, at the Frick Collection, and I had this magnificent collection. And so I started a program there for medical students. And that was not my idea. It came from Yale through a collaboration of the Yale Center for British Art and Yale Medical School. The idea was to take medical students out of a clinical setting, bring them to an art museum, teach them how to look at works of art so when they return to the hospital they're better observers of their patients. So with Yale's very generous permission I started a version of that program at the Frick Collection but it was only in 2004 that I realized there was a much broader application that it had real relevance and applicability outside of medicine and that's when I started uh, calling other groups. Let's say you have a group of medical students here right now and we're looking at a painting. Can you walk through what you would be telling them to do? First thing I have to tell them is, don't tell me what's wrong with the subject of the painting. This is not a session in diagnostics. I'm not interested in the anatomy of the person. Step away from your medical training and just go with your inherent observation. I don't want you to read the label. I want you to look at the big picture and the small details. And I ask them to discuss it with their partners because how often in medicine are we working as part of a team? And we frequently miss things if we don't ask our collaborators and our colleagues, is there something here I might be missing? So I ask them to take five minutes, look at the work of art, tell me who's in the picture, what's going on, where are we, and to the best of your ability, what time of day is it? I'm not worried about the why, tell me what you see. And do you find that people are able to do that? It's harder than it sounds because they want to tell you, well, this is Rembrandt's self-portrait. And I say, you know, it's wonderful that you know it's Rembrandt's self-portrait, but that's not the point here. This is not about art history. We're using art as data, not substantively. And, and I find medical students or doctors in particular want to show you all their art knowledge <laughs> if they can, but that's not the point of this. This is using new data, stepping away from what you do every day and using the same skills that you use in a professional context. 
So how did you end up with those as the initial questions as what a person should look for? Well, I, as a museum educator, it was really a carryover from how I was teaching children and adults to look at works of art. We all have biases, we all have inherent biases, and I believe that when you read a museum label, you're gonna look in the painting for what that label tells you to look for. So I wanna get rid of those biases temporarily because everyone has an inherent sense of observation. It's just a matter of degree to how much we rely on it. And the analogy for medical students is when you walk into a room, just look at your patient. Just look at your patient before you pick up any charts or any x-rays, look at them, look at the the table next to them, are there flowers, are there cards, are there, is there candy, are they wearing their own pajamas or a hospital issued gown, and how do they look when you walk in? And then you can get the, the rest of the information, you can read the figurative label. But we need to rely on our own sense of observation before we go, technology is very important and we need all that data, but the best set of data we have is a pair of eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so often they, it does seem like you're in circumstances, check out clerks, all these different doctors, certainly, uh, where they just don't even look at you when they come in the room. And one of the problems I was trying to address with medical students, we've all had an experience where you go to the doctor, the doctor goes through all your papers, rewrites the prescriptions, hands it to you and says, I'll see you in six months, and never looks you in the eye and says, how are you feeling? And so we really wanted to try to address that issue with the medical students. One of the things that you talk about are the four A's, which I had to write down just to make sure I remembered. Analyze, articulate, adapt, and autopilot. Do you want to break down what those are? Yes. Actually, I shifted them a little bit because this is an ever-evolving process. So whoever I'm working with, whether it be emergency room doctor, police officer, intelligence analyst, or anyone, every new situation, every new problem, witness, you do four A's. First, you have to assess your situation. You have to say, what do I have in front of me? Then you analyze it. You say, what's important? How do I prioritize? What do I know? What don't I know? Then you articulate. You have to tell yourself, your colleague, put it in an email, write a report, and then you adapt your behavior or you act. Autopilot comes in because you have to turn it off. Because if you're on autopilot, those four things become obsolete. You just go forward. So I want you to turn the autopilot off and begin to assess, analyze, articulate, and then adapt your behavior and act and make a decision. Mm-hmm. And articulating is another part of the big process. It's not being able to not only see what's in the painting, say, but you also have to be able to describe it to somebody else. That's right. My standard is I tell all the participants in my program, describe this work of art to me as if I can't see what you're looking at. So you can't use your hands and you can't say, well, up here we have, I need to know where you're looking. I tell them to lay the groundwork, lay a foundation for what you're looking at. Because if I'm on the other side of your email, I can't see what you see. So maybe because this is audio, I just had an idea. We should try this. Okay. Maybe as a way of example, I'm reaching for my book here. Can I just open this to a painting and you try to describe it to uh, sure. the people who are listening? Sure. And we'll see how you would go about doing it in the way that you would teach it. We're looking at a painting and again, it's about laying the foundation. We have two women in the painting. One is seated and one is standing and they're separated by a table covered in a bright blue tablecloth and the tablecloth falls in very interesting folds. There are folds and creases. The woman who is seated appears to be dressed very differently than the woman who's standing. The woman who is seated has very pale white skin, blonde hair, and her hair is done in an intricate 
as my sixth graders used to say at the Frick, she has a scrunchie in the back of her hair, and it's done in with a beautiful pearl design. She's wearing a yellow coat, and it has trim in black and white. I happen to know that it's ermine, but it's white with black dots. You can see just the end of a very bright orange sash that's tied around the middle of her bright yellow jacket. And in contrast, the woman who's standing, who appears to be gesturing to the seated woman, has a darker tone to her skin. She's wearing a much duller brown colored dress with uh, a white collar and the sleeves come to her elbows and yet she's wearing a very, the brightest color in the painting is the standing woman's apron. And she looks like she's in service to the woman who's seated. And the action between them is the standing woman is handing a folded piece of paper to the woman who's seated. And the woman who's seated is turned to the standing woman with a look of sort of inquiry on her face. What are you handing me? What's going on? And the two subtleties that I just love about this painting that the really astute observer will notice. The first one is in, it's called the mistress and maid. And the maid is the one who's standing. And if you look at her arm, you can see there's a line in her forearm because she's worked so hard. She's washed dishes and scrubbed that you can see a line on her arm where the color of her skin, her skin is discolored. And it's an incredible contrast to the seated woman's perfect porcelain white skin. That's one detail that's amazing. And the other one is on the table, the seated woman was writing. She was interrupted at her writing, and there's paper, and she's holding a quill pen, and there's also an inkwell and a water glass, and reflected in those pieces of glass is the light source that we can't see. So there's the big picture of the women and their dialogue and their relationship, and then these incredible details of light uh, reflected in the glass and the colors of their skin that speak to the big picture of the socioeconomic differences between them. Great. So what's the name of that painting? So people can go see if they pictured it, how you described it. It's called Mistress and Maid by Johannes Vermeer. And it's uh, at the Frick Collection, and it's the largest of the three paintings that they have at the Frick. It's a great painting. It's so rich in narrative, but it's also equally rich in small details. And I think that the big picture and the small details are equally important. I think one of the interesting things you said in the book was that most people only look at a painting on average for 17 seconds. Why do you think that is? I think people are there's a sense of inhibition about looking at works of art. People are afraid. They think if they don't know anything about a work of art that they have nothing to see. And one of the, I should say, secondary goals of my program is to dismantle those inhibitions. I want people to know that their skills of critical inquiry and just looking are just as good as someone who is trained in art history and that everybody can see something in a work of art. Is there any kind of imperative where you feel to be polite, you have to move along or... I mean, I wondered that a little bit, even with the example of the guy with the sharp object, is there something in us that keeps us from really looking at, certainly staring at a person, but also just standing in front of a work of art for 15 minutes? I think people are really reticent to leave their comfort zone. I think that we are uh, so inundated with our own lives and the details of our own lives and our technology that we become inured to the world around us. I I lament that daily because there is a whole world to see both where we live and where we visit and where we travel and it's up to us to step out of our comfort zone and the participants in my class I force them to do it with the hope that they'll continue to do it when they're on their own. Do you find that people do? Do they give you feedback to say that they are observing the world very differently? 
that's how the book came into being. <laughs> I received so much feedback, and you know the book is full of anecdotes. And I was receiving emails and notes and letters and calls from people a month out of the class, six months out of the class, even a year out of the class, saying, you'll never believe how I use this. And they would relay their narrative to me, and I thought, this is too rich. I need to put this down in a book. So that's the book was a natural outgrowth of people's feedback of how they were using this class. Is there one story that really stands out to you that somebody said, told you? Yeah, I mean, there are a few, but one of them, it was, again, in a criminal context. And one of the terms that I talk about, it's not just about what we see and what we notice, it's what we're missing. And one of the terms that I use is called the pertinent negative, And it means to articulate what you don't see in addition to what you do see. And a deputy sheriff in North Carolina uh, wrote an email to me and he said it was a investigation of a suicide or it, I'm sorry it wasn't a suicide it was an accident that a boat overturned and they found the body and the body had gotten in the way of the propeller and this person had died and he said something was not right in the investigation my sixth sense told me something wasn't right and then I realized it was that pertinent negative thing what wasn't there he said if the boat had overturned all the registration papers in the boat would have been wet because they would have fallen into the water. And the key for him was they were dry. And he said just noticing that and articulating that changed the whole investigation from accident into homicide. And his observations changed his behavior. And when I hear that people are changing the way they behave or the way they communicate, I feel like it's sticking and it's really making a difference. One of the great stories that you talk about also is about how we sometimes miss essential details in life. Things that are essential, possibly because they're too small or we're just not observant enough. And the example that you give is the murder of rock musician Linda Stein. I was wondering if you could tell that story. Sure. Linda Stein was real estate agent to the stars and she was a manager of uh, bands and rock musicians. And she was killed in her home on Park Avenue, I believe it was. They had a suspect and they had a videotape of the suspect leaving her home on the day of the murder. And they watched the videotape and watched the videotape and they just couldn't figure out what was the problem. They were looking for a smoking gun. They just couldn't find one and they couldn't make the connection between the suspect coming and going from the house and the killing of this woman. And finally, one of the investigators noticed after watching the videotape that the suspect's pants were turned inside out. Why would someone turn their pants inside out? Because there was blood from the murder on. And it was so interesting that so many investigators looked at the videotape over and over and over again, and then one person caught that the pants were inside out, and that was the turning point for the jury. That when they heard that this woman, why would anyone turn their pants inside out? Go out, leave the building one way, and come back in with your pants turned inside out. And that turn, turned out to be the critical juncture of the investigation for the jury and they convicted her of murder. We've given some examples of how observing can keep us safer in the world even if it's just not walking into a person who's typing on their phone. But um, another example that you gave was of a terrorist attack that happened in Kenya as a way of illustrating how being more observant actually helps us in a very dangerous situation. Do you want to explain uh, what that situation was and then maybe the contrast between what happened to people who were observant and weren't? Sure. It's a tragic. It was September of 2013 was the attack on the Westgate Mall in Kenya. It's a perfect example of 
situational awareness. And I, in the program, I talk about short-term situational awareness versus long-term situational awareness. Where am I now? Where are my surroundings? Who's with me? Am I safe? Am I comfortable? Can I get out easily? That's where I am now. And long-term situational awareness is, it's like the United States vis-a-vis -vis ISIS. We know there's an ongoing problem. Our situational awareness shifts by the day, but we're aware of this overarching threat that we have to deal with. So regarding the Westgate Mall, a woman came in with her two children and they were going to a cooking class. It was like a I use this picture all the time in the program. It's like a Williams-Sonoma that we have in this country. And she went to take her children for the cooking class. And whether it was maternal instinct that kicked in, it enabled her to heighten her sense of short-term situational awareness. So when the attacker started firing, she took her two children. She noticed that the countertop where they were working, the stove part, had a wall behind it, and it was fortified. And there was a pillar behind that. And so she took her children, she laid them down behind the countertop, and she sang to them for five hours, and she kept them on the floor. And they survived, and 68 other people didn't. I mean, and there were so many injuries, and no one knew who the killers were because they were changing clothes. And the idea of, of short-term, immediate situational awareness became the difference between life and death. So when it comes to, like, making all these little observations and starting to put some of these things into practice for those of people who are listening, what do we need to be aware of as far as how other people influence how we might be seeing a situation? An example that comes to mind is this, the story about Derek Kayango that opens the book. And he's a Ugandan immigrant. I thought about this for so long. This is a man who was in a hotel room in the United States. And he left his hotel room. And when he came back up, housekeeping had been in and cleaned his room. And he saw in the bathroom that they had replaced his soap, as they do in a hotel room. So he took the new soap in its box. And he ran down to the, to the front desk of the hotel and said, where's my old soap? And they said, well, we replaced it, sir. And he said, I don't want to have to pay for a new soap. And they said, it's complimentary. And then he asked the question that none of us would ever ask. He said, well, what happened to my old soap? And they said, well, we threw it away, and we gave you a new one. And this man came back up to his hotel room and he cried because he realized that soap is such a rare and precious commodity in his home country. And here in the United States, we're throwing away millions of tiny bars every day so that guests can have a brand new bar of soap. So he started the Global Soap Project as a result of that, collecting tons and tons and tons of discarded soaps, sanitizing them, and then shipping them to countries in Africa where no one has soap. And it was that idea of not just observing, but thinking of the bigger picture, something we take for granted, thinking of the big, bigger picture and making a behavioral, you know, making a behavioral change based on his observations. And I hate to say it, but changing the world. He changed the world. And that brings me to the title. I wasn't sure about the idea of change your life. And I sort of argued with my editors. And I said, I'm not out to change people's lives. And he said, but you are changing people's lives with this book. Nurses rethink how they're taking care of their patients. Police officers think before they fire their weapons. We all need to be able to articulate our situations. And that means changing people's lives. So that's why I agreed to the title. <laughs> when you talk about articulation, that's an interesting thing, because you could understand how it would be very important for a police officer to be able to describe what a crime scene looked like, or even a, a witness to a crime on the street. Very important that that person notices something mm -hmm. that can be used. But how do we use that in our day-to-day -day life? Why would it be important for me to articulate? Like if I was going downstairs right after this interview and trying to articulate what it was like mm -hmm. 
in a clear way. Why would that be important? Well, I'll give you another example. This one's not in the book. Um, my son goes to public school in New York City, and in his middle school, there are 65 languages spoken among the kids, and one of his friends at school wears a hijab. And he came home and he said to me, Mom, what's the difference between a hijab and a burqa? He said, I'm just curious. And I thought, since we live in a visual world and this poor child suffers through the art of perception all the time, I said, let's look up some visual images so I can show you the difference. And when we went on the internet and I was looking for artistic images of women in hijabs versus burqas, and we discovered four kinds of headgear. There's the hijab, there's the niqab, where the eyes are just exposed, there's the shador, which is like a full body shawl, and then there's the burqa that actually has a screen in front of the eyes. And what was so interesting is I made a slide of it and I used it in my presentations and in all of my FBI surveillance classes, I showed this slide and you know how many agents came up to me and said, well, we didn't know the differences among all the headwear. And in our society, if we have to speak with clarity, precision and objectivity, we need to understand all the perspectives around us and not just say, oh, well, she was wearing head, you know, headgear or a hat. What does that mean? So in our everyday lives, we see these things, and I think it's important to be able to speak with that level of precision. This is a little bit of a side note, but one of the things I loved learning from your book was about what flight attendants are looking for yeah. when you get on. I just had to take a flight last week. I feel like everybody would love to know this, so I'm just going to ask you. This is very interesting. I live half my life on a plane. And if you ever notice, when you step onto a plane, there's usually a flight attendant right there, and she's gre she or he is greeting you. And there's also one at the back of the plane if it's a large enough flight. And you think they're just there to greet you. They're not. They're assessing everyone who gets on the plane for ABPs, which are able-bodied persons. And they're looking at you when you come in. They're looking to see who's already making trouble, who's asking for a drink, who needs help with their luggage. And they're looking for people that they can depend on in case of an emergency. And so those flight attendants are watching, they're doing the four A's. They're assessing and they're analyzing. And if there's a problem or an outlier or a particularly troublesome person, they're gonna articulate it and then they're gonna act on it. So those flight attendants that seem so cheery when you're getting on, they're giving you the once over. <laughs> and they're also looking for people who can help if something goes wrong, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, they are. They definitely are. Strong, tall people. I imagine, I, I, I was like, well, I'm rolled out. People who, people who help other people with their luggage are always good ones. Right, yeah. <laughs> so if it's me just struggling to get my thing in the overhead bin and there's no one around me, I can just assume nobody near me is going to help, right? right? Right. So what is the acronym COBRA that you use? COBRA is when you need to stand back and you need to ask yourself a series of questions. The first COBRA C stands for camouflage. What might be hiding? Can you step back and say, okay, what might I be missing in this situation? O stands for one task at a time. Where we pride ourselves on being able to multitask. Multitasking is not a good thing. The brain can't take in all that information and do all those tasks well. So C for camouflage, O for one. B is to take a break and to step away. If you have the luxury of walking away or taking a day and rethinking what the problem is if you haven't been able to get an answer. And then R is for realign your expectations. Come back from that break and think, well, I wasn't able to solve the problem this way. Maybe I can look at it this way. And finally, the A, which I try to put in every single one of my models or tools that I give people, is ask someone. Be collaborative because very selfishly, multiple perspectives make for better decisions and more informed decisions. 
ask someone what they think and say, look, I'm grappling with this problem. This is the conclusion I've come to. Is there anything I'm missing and how do you view it? So that COBRA camouflage, one thing at a time, take a break, realign your expectations and ask someone, I find can be very helpful in myriad situations. Mm-hmm. So one segment in the book is called, What's Your Mahogany Table? What does that mean? Well, there's a painting in the book um, of the lovely Mrs. Hannah Winthrop. I call her Mrs. John Winthrop, and it's a John Singleton Copley painting from 1793, but we don't have to worry about any of that information. And I use it in every class, and I tell all my participants, if they remember just one slide from the presentation, it should be this lovely Mrs. Hannah Winthrop, because we have this woman, she's wearing a red and white bow in her bonnet, she's got a white bonnet on, she's brunette, she has dimples, lots of chins, lots of pearls, this brilliant blue silk dress, a blue and white bow, she's sitting in an upholstered chair, and she's holding a nectarine in each of her hands. And yet, if I were to ask an entire room to describe this painting as I just did, 50% of the people at least would omit the fact that she's sitting at this magnificent mahogany table, this shiny table that in the painting has this incredibly reflective surface that shows her, the lace on her sleeve and the skin on the for, her forearm and even the nectarines that she's holding in her hands. And people say, well, so what? Who cares about a dumb mahogany table in the painting? The problem is it's hiding in plain sight. And there are so many things that are hiding in plain sight that we're not seeing. So I pose the question to my classes, how many of you have ever said to yourself, to your colleagues, to friends, how did I miss that? Because it was right in front of my eyes. So I use the mahogany table as an illustrative example of how so many things are right in front of us and we just don't see them. Mm-hmm. So it's a look again, like if, if you're not able to figure out what to do with your life, look again, that sort of thing. Exactly. So what about September 11th? On the day when the terrorists ran planes at the World Trade Center in New York City, where were you? I was in New York City. I was exactly where you didn't want to be. And I tell my classes, especially uh, trauma nurses and people that work in critical care and first responders, I understand what it is to experience something of that magnitude because I think about it every single day. And it's not just the visual information that I saw, it was the smells and the sounds for weeks and weeks and weeks afterwards. And yet we have to go on with our lives. And I think about September 11th every time I step on a plane, every time I go down into the subway. My son wasn't born yet, and yet when he goes to school, I I ask myself, well, what what if it happens today? How's he going to get home safely? So I explain to my critical care nurses that I know what it's like to experience this trauma, but we need to be able to articulate what it is we've experienced to help us go on. And one group of nurses at the uh, University of Colorado at Aurora who received all those patients after the shooting of the Batman movie, one of the nurses said to me, but we ran out of gurneys that night. And when you all woke up in the morning, you had a backstory, you knew what was going on. We didn't know at the time when those emergency room doors opened and we were just flooded with these critical, critically wounded people, we didn't know what was happening. I said, that's when you have to pull it all together and you have to pull your situational awareness together and do the best you can with the information you have because we never know when that next 9-11 is around the corner. We need to be able to process these observation and perception skills to help us enable us to do our jobs and live our lives. What was so interesting too is that you were there with your husband, very near where the attack happened, and you 
both observed completely different things. Is that true? Actually, it was, an, it was a narrative. It wasn't me, but it was someone that we read about and somebody that I know. And we wrote about it in the book because I included it in the book because of the really different perspectives. As you said, these two people had. They were together at the time the planes hit. They gathered their children. They left New York City together. And his uncle is a very famous author and asked if he could interview them following their experiences and he interviewed them separately and their account and narrative of what they experienced together was so vastly different I read about it and I thought how could two people experience the exact same thing at the exact same time and recall such different things and it had a profound influence having been in in New York City on 9-11 I know what I experienced and I know what those around me experienced but here it was put to paper and it was a narrative that was explained to a writer, and it really had such an impact on me. And I said, if something like 9-11 can happen, imagine with our everyday experiences, you and I could be walking down the street and see something and come away with fundamentally different perceptions of what we just observed. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. So what has developing all this heightened awareness meant to you personally for your life? I mean, besides the fact that you make a living this way. (laughs) Yes, it's what I do every day. Um, But people ask me in jest, and unfortunately, I know the answer. People say, can you ever turn this off? And unfortunately, I can't. Uh, I'm always looking around. I'm always listening. I'm always watching. It reminds me of the book. I believe his name is Gavin de Beckwith. I believe, I don't know if I have the name right. He wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. And many of my law enforcement colleagues have recommended this book. I was born with the gift of fear, and I have this heightened sensitivity to everything around me. So it has profoundly affected my life, but it has also enriched my life because when I'm in different situations, when I'm in different countries, I look at the world, I hope, with a broader lens and that I've dispelled that myopia that people fall victim to. And I hope that as a result of all my studies in art and looking at art, that I look at people and situations and environments and problems with a much broader eye, even though I walk around in fear all the time. Um, I hope that I embrace the world in a much fuller way. Do you still find that you enjoy art on a fundamental level? It never gets old. Uh, It just never gets old. And people say, you know, what do you do between the book tour and teaching? I'm on the road, on the road. What do I do to unwind? I go to the art museum. I still go to the art museum. So if we were going to leave people with one more take, one takeaway from listening to this about, I don't know, something practical they could do today besides Order Visual Intelligence by Amy Herman. (laughs) Um, Can you give them them a suggestion as they, maybe they're already walking down the street listening to this, but as they head out into the world? Yeah, I, it's a dialogue I engage with my son at the end of every day, and I ask him to tell me one thing that you noticed out of the ordinary today that's worth talking about. And he knows to look for these things now because we talk about them at the end of the day. But I say, tell me one thing that was out of the ordinary or that surprised you. And we end up talking about a lot about irony, about things that we notice because of our, the mood we're in or uh, how we woke up that morning or how we're feeling really affects how we notice the world. And I find that by engaging in dialogue with somebody and conversation with someone, not only do you broaden your own perspectives and not only do you underscore your ability to see, you also heighten your awareness to what it is you might be missing and maybe you won't miss it next time. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And this is The Bittersweet Life. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you.
We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.